0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In the year 800, Charlemagne was crowned the Holy Roman empire, emperor. I know this and only know this because of a Saturday Night Live skit called Coffee Talk where Mike Myers said, Holy Roman Empire, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Discuss amongst yourselves. Charlemagne's quite the the controversial character in the history of the world. Uh, He may have been a war hero. He may have been a war criminal probably a little bit of both, but he was in his time, probably the most famous man in Europe. He had conquered all of Western Europe, uh, all of France and all of Germany. And when he died, they made this incredibly ornate tomb for him. It was this enormous tomb underneath in the sort of basement of the cathedral near his palace. And then things get sketchy. Things get sketchy because no less than six times after that, people got into Charlemagne's tomb. They broke in or opened it. For whatever reason, they decided to open it and messed with stuff. One king named Otto took his bones out and put them in another place. Then somebody else put them back. Then somebody else... Decided that they should be buried there instead of Charlemagne. It was a lot of up and down back and forth. But there is an urban legend that, that Ben Witherington, a biblical scholar, mentions at one point during these stories. And I looked all well, I looked all over the internet. I didn't like actually do any like meaningful research. There were no libraries involved in this situation. But there is a story that floats around that when they opened King Charlemagne's tomb, he was seated on his throne with a Bible in his lap. And his finger, his decaying finger was pointing to Mark eight twenty 36, I'm sorry, a verse that we will read this morning. It said, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? Now, I could not find any like annotated academic work that backs this story up. Now, if you want to go to Jim Bob's history blog and read about this, you can. Charlemagne had conquered so much of the world at that point. And if anybody could attest to this idea, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? It would have been him. Now, let's be honest. I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room have no intentions or desires for world conquering. Most of us are not out here thinking that we're going to have dreams and ambitions of world dominance. That, okay, fine. Yes, of course. But all of us have things that we're willing to sacrifice for. All of us have things that we're willing to make decisions that cost us in order to achieve. What are those things for you? Is it maybe your kids being successful? Maybe it's your career advancing, your business getting started or continuing. Is it the acclaim of the right people or the acclaim of the crowd? Maybe it's finding the right person that you want to love you. There are all these sort of different ways, these different things that grab our hearts, that fill us with desire, that fill us with this willingness to sacrifice. And our lives are sort of this constant calculus of, is this worth sacrificing for that? Is this worth trying to fulfill my desires, even if it's going to cost me something? We are constantly trying to achieve our identities. It's so ingrained into us that most of us don't even realize. It's just sort of happening in the background. It's like the hum of your computer that you have just sort of phased out. You don't even think about it anymore. We instinctually try to find something meaningful and chase it with our lives. Every single one of us. And every single one of us makes sacrifices for this thing that we're chasing. Maybe it's your sleep. Maybe it's time with your family. Maybe it's your dignity. Maybe it's a compromise of your morals here and there in order to get where you want. But all of this striving, all of this hustling that we are constantly engaged in includes us running away from a question that haunts us. Is it worth it? where our hustling gets us to, where our striving takes us, when we get there, is it worth it? Will achieving this goal actually deliver what I'm hoping it does? How far do I have to go to make sure that this fulfills me? in this life of achieving and then expressing our self-made identity, we are under constant pressure to keep going, which leads us to further striving or to burn out and give up. And this is true of Christians and non-Christians. All of us are in this boat. This is the moment that we live in. But Jesus is offering us something different. Jesus, to be frank, is demanding a different sort of life than we are all living. Jesus is calling us to a life of self-denial instead of self-fulfillment. Jesus is calling us to a life of self-denial instead of self-fulfillment. And if we're willing to fall in line with his radical vision for who we are as humans, Jesus promises that we'll actually find what we were looking for all along real and true life. We're going to see how this works in the story of Jesus from Mark chapter 8 this morning. If you're able, we'd love for you to stand as I read Mark chapter 8. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, it'll also be on the screen behind me. Please stand as we read God's word together. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And they came to Bethsaida and some of the people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and see his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. There are several stories. I appreciate you hanging with me as we made our way through all of Mark 8. Uh graciously, I'm not going to cover every single story this morning uh, that we just read together. Rather, I want to focus our attention on the things that Jesus says. What are the things that Jesus says in the conversations that he has in this passage? He The passage begins with Jesus feeding 4,000, and it looks an awful lot like the time that he fed 5,000. He, in fact, references it as just the same thing. But as soon as he gets done with that, as soon as he gets off the boat in the next place, the Pharisees come out and they are back on their game. They are back at it, ready to go. And they want to pick a fight with Jesus. The language of them that they came out is the language that they sought him out. They came looking for him and they came looking for an argument. They hunt Jesus down to pick a fight and they want him to to do a sign. Jesus, do do a thing so that we will believe in you. They want Jesus to to call down fire like Elijah did. They want Jesus to bring a pillar of fire and of smoke like Moses. They want something that they can see in the sky. They want Jesus to perform on their terms, not his. You see, the Pharisees, weren't looking for an act of mercy on earth, an act of mercy that they had seen Jesus do time and time again. How many times, as we have just read through Mark in the past few weeks, have the Pharisees come out and wanted to make sure that Jesus wasn't healing people on the Sabbath? I mean, these guys, these guys I said it last week, have big building inspector vibes. And they're out there going, you're, you're not going to heal him on the Sabbath, are you, Jesus? Because that would be wrong. And Jesus time and time again has healed people on the Sabbath. Certainly Pharisees were among those. People of the Pharisees party were among those who have eaten the bread that he blessed and gave to 5,000 or 4,000 people. But it's not enough. They want more. They want Jesus to dance their dance. And there's no lesson in this for us. None of us would ever get angry and embittered at God for not answering our selfish prayers on our timeline. So the good thing about this is, is we can just move past this part of the text because none of us ever demand that God do things on our timeline. None of us ever demand that God work things out in the way we want. So it's good. You're safe. This text can't hurt you. But we do. We do, don't we? And the, the Pharisees are there demanding a sign for Jesus. And Jesus sighs. It says he, he sighs deeply in his spirit. It is the sigh of desperation. It is the sigh of despair. In short, this is the sigh of a parent. When you have told your beloved child nine times not to do the thing, and for the 10th time, the child does the thing, and that, that sound that is part groan, part sigh, that your body emits, that sound is the sound that Jesus made. <sighs> the Pharisees demanding a sign. Jesus does the sort of hybrid sigh groan and just says, no, no, you're not gonna get it. You're not going to get a sign in this lifetime at all. I mean, Jesus, why, why didn't Jesus just do it? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like if they said, hey, Jesus, we'll believe in you if you'll just do a cool sky thing. Why wasn't Jesus like, okay, there's some, look, the sun's gone now for a few minutes. Huh? Good enough. Why didn't he do that? Because he knew. Because he knew that no matter what he did, he, they know that he has raised people from the dead. They know that he has taken five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 people with it. They know that he has healed deaf people, that he has cast out demons. They know all of that. And their response is just, oh, do, do another trick, Jesus? Even if he does the trick, they're not going to believe. Even if he does it, their hearts are hard. They have shut themselves off to the possibility of believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus just refuses to play their game. And so he just says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he gets in the boat with the disciples. And as this boat pulls off, it's the same thing that happens to you and I. We, we get five minutes away from our house and go, oh, I forgot this. And then you have to do the math of like, do I have time to go back and get it? I, I, I saw, I won't, you know, we all do this, but I, I saw one of you this week at Bandit Coffee and uh, I forgot something at home. I have to go get it. We all do that. This, this is, the disciples are just like us. They get in the boat and they go, oh no, we only have one loaf of bread. And now we're supposed to see the irony in this situation, right? Just moments, maybe days before Jesus has taken five loaves and fed thousands of people. And now Jesus, they're in the boat and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? We only have one loaf of bread. We totally forgot. What are we going to do? And it's like, you know that you have like an endless supply of bread right there. But how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds and says, oh yeah, watch out. Be careful. Be careful because you need to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians. And this completely sails over the disciples' head. Like, do you notice the disciples do not respond to this statement by Jesus? They continue to argue about not having enough bread. So let's let's stop for a second and not make the same mistake of the disciples. Leaven is the thing that you put into bread in order to make the bread rise. It's also what you put into beer to make beer fizzy. Uh, But that's another story for another day. It's the change agent that takes over everything inside of the loaf and expands. If you have watched the great British baking show, when they are proving something, they're letting the yeast do its work. And that's why when you sort of prove a loaf of bread, the dough starts out like this big and then you leave it for a while and the dough is grown in size. That's the yeast doing its work. And again and again and again, in the Bible, yeast is almost always something that is to be avoided. It's a symbol for different sorts of sinfulness. And Jesus ties it specifically to two things. One, to the Pharisees, and two, to the Herodians. The Pharisees were the people that were trying to use religion to justify their lives. They were trying to use moralism and legalism to show that they had value and worth. And yet their hearts were hard. We have just seen it. Jesus has just told them, I'm not going to do another sign for you. You're never going to see it. And he tells his disciples, beware, beware that your heart does not become hard, that you do not become so concerned with rule keeping that you forget the rule giver. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Herodians. You remember in chapter three, Jesus has paired these two groups up before the Pharisees and the Herodians. And these are people that saw politics as the answer to all of their life's questions. As we're gonna see in this chapter and in the story of Jesus, the way of Christianity is the way of self-denial and service. The way of Christianity is not the way of power and ascendancy. In fact, historically speaking, when the church has been at its biggest and occupied the seat of political power is often the darkest ages for the church itself. And yet the opposite is true, and we see that as well. When the church is persecuted and under duress, it is when the church flourishes. We see this happening all around us in the world. We see this happening throughout China. I have mentioned before where the Chinese church is exploding despite the fact that it is illegal. Beloved, let me be frank. We need to stop trying to restore Christian power and might in our country. And we need to start serving the least of these all of the energy and effort that we expend on all of these sort of battles and all of these being right and all of this seeking of power is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the way of service. The way of Christ is the way of loving others. How would this change the way you interact on social media? Just a question. Just throwing it out there. Let's just say this beware of the yeast of the Herodians. But the disciples, they they, they just keep worrying about this bread situation. They just keep worrying about, okay, what are we going to do? And the issue with Jesus is never do we have enough bread. He is again in the sign mood. And he asks them, do you not get it yet? Have you not figured this out? They just are struggling to believe that Jesus is good and Jesus is all powerful. And so they get across to the other side of the lake. And when they get there, Jesus goes to a man who is blind and Jesus heals him. It's another miracle where Jesus, where Jesus spits and uses that as part of his process. We pointed out last time that's weird. We'll point out this time that that's a little weird. And we're going to move on from there to the trip that they make up to Caesarea Philippi. As they're going up to this new town, Jesus is kind of asking the disciples some questions. Hey, who do do people say that I am? Oh, well, some people say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And and other people think that you're Elijah, come back to earth. And uh, some people think you're a prophet like in the olden days. And then Jesus sort of sharpens the question and puts it to them. Okay, that's what other people say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds clearly, succinctly, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Holy One of God. God's promised one. That's who you are, Jesus. And this is the first time that this language has been used since Jesus' baptism. In Mark, we hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now we hear Peter saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And what happened when Jesus heard from heaven, The voice of God. He was immediately driven out in the wilderness and tempted. What's funny is that right after Peter says that this is who Jesus is, that proclaims him to be the Messiah, he is again tempted. This time though, not by being out in the wilderness, not by Satan directly coming to him, rather through Peter. Because Jesus says, let me be clear. When you say that I'm the Messiah, we may be saying different things what you think the Messiah should do might not be the direction that this is going to go in because we're going to go to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well. When I get to Jerusalem, it's not going to be me kicking the Romans out of town. When we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. They're going to torture me. And so Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, come here. Pulls Jesus, I mean... You got to give it to Peter. He had chutzpah because he pulls Jesus aside like, "Mm -mm, nope, I don't like all of this. You're going to go suffer and die stuff. Okay. It's not on brand. It's not on message. It's not what we're doing here. So cut it out. He's tempting Jesus. He's tempting Jesus to blow it all up. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Just what every follower of Jesus wants to hear. He says, you're looking at this with human eyes and not God's eyes. Peter, your heart is hard. Jesus, Jesus is telling Peter, God is not beholden to our plans. He won't back our causes. He calls us. To follow him. In fact, that phrase, get behind me, Satan, that he says to Peter is actually the same phrase he uses just a few verses later when he says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must come after me. Both of those are the same phrase. And they're the idea of falling in in line behind your military leader. He says to Peter, Peter, fall in line. If you're going to follow me, you're going to go in the same direction as me. And then he calls together the crowd and says, look, do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow after me and fall in line with what I am doing? Then here's the direction we're going. We're going in the direction of suffering. The way down is the way up. If we want to fall in line with Jesus, the Messiah, it means that we must deny ourselves. People who peddle the idea that Jesus is going to make your life easier, that he's going to fix your health problems and give you money are liars. People who follow Jesus for the power that it can bring are false teachers. The path of Jesus and the cost of discipleship is every single time self-denial. It's giving up our very lives. And if you think I'm being a little harsh, Think, if you think I'm going a little too hard in the paint here, look at the text. Jesus says it there. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Everything inside of us fights this idea. We instinctively try to justify ourselves and go, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally doing this. I'm totally doing this. I'm, you know, I mean, Jesus wasn't expecting, Jesus wasn't expecting, you know, us to really deny ourselves. So I'm, I'm, I'm passing. I'm passing. So we try to justify ourselves, or we soften it, or we explain it away, or maybe we just straight up ignore it. It's an option too. Because this text battles everything inside of us we as a people only know lives of self-achievement. We only know the relentless pursuit of making ourselves what we want to be and then projecting that self out to others. This is what causes us to burn out. This is what causes us to just drop out and self-medicate oftentimes. Our relentless Tiredness as we hustle and toil to make something of ourselves. And when we can't, we get listless. When we can't, we feel a sadness that settles into us when we can't constantly create and project who we want to be. And Jesus is inviting us to something different. Jesus is inviting us out of our self actualization, out of our self-fulfillment, and into self-denial. He says all the little sacrifices that we make along the way to fulfill our desires are junk. He asks us to come after him, to follow after him. And then he ups the ante and says we need to walk away from it all. He, he, He asks the question, what is your soul worth? And what's interesting is Jesus not only asks that question, what is your soul worth? But he answers it with his life. He lives this out. Jesus denied himself first in the incarnation, leaving the joys of heaven on earth, leaving the joys of heaven to live life on the earth. And then ultimately his self-denial leads him to his torture, to his fake trial, to his crucifixion. Why? Because he looked at you and said, your soul is worth this to me. Your soul is worth me giving up my life for. Not because of any of your piddly achievements, just because he has set his affection on you. Just because he has decided to love you this wondrous love flows from his self-denial. Church, if you've been loved like that, if you've been loved so much that Jesus says, your soul is worth my life, then let's love and serve that way to anyone who Jesus puts in our path. Let's follow after him in that sort of self-denial. Let's make that Truth, the truth that Jesus has loved us so much that he would give up his life for us, that Jesus knows you by name and calls you by name. Let's make that the core of who we are. Let's be a community that serves because we have been served by our Savior. Let's follow Jesus together down the path of self denial. Let's fall in line behind our glorious King, our Messiah the suffering servant. Let's pray.